Welcome to The Deep Dive. I am your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I am Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights, and today's guest is Derek Walker, founder of Brown & Browner, a creative agency based in South Carolina. And when this brother gave me his bio, it was non-traditional, just like he is, and we really about to start some things, as he would say. So what I want to do is let Derek introduce himself in his own words, because he's had a career that has spanned just a lifetime of, of creative work within marketing and advertising. And like he says, we're definitely going to get into some things on this episode of The Deep Dive. So thanks for being with me, man. Thank you for having me. I've worked in advertising for the last 25 plus years, working on all kinds of accounts. And before then, I spent 10 years on the client side at Pizza Hut. And before that, two years on the client side at Toys R Us. I've seen a little bit of everything. A lot of big brands in those in that background. Yeah, but you know, here's the funny thing. Big brands behave just like little brands. You know why? Because they're human beings running them. They're interesting because people think, oh, they're big. They do things differently. No, petty travels everywhere. So does scared and passionate and brave. All those things exist everywhere. And I think that's a that's a really good place to start because one of the things that I think about a lot and I've noticed you talk about and work around a lot of these issues is this idea of, of human beings. And you started there and I think that's a perfect place to get the ball rolling because you recently had a post, this might've been on LinkedIn or Twitter or even both, talking about how advertising is is very simple and we've made it complicated. So just go into that a little bit more like that, this idea of simplicity. Okay. First simple isn't easy. Simple is just, they take, you take something, anything complicated, anything hard to understand and you make it where people can understand it, grasp it, get it. Advertising is simple in that we speak to human beings. This deals with emotions, feelings, we have to recognize that every decision is based on emotions and feelings. Now I say simple because we take in all the information from the client side and then we take in all the information or all the information from consumers, what we know about human beings. And we create a message that relays what the client needs us to say, but in a human way. And I like saying it's simple because it looks and feels so human that we go, oh, that makes good sense. But the idea behind it is complicated. The, the will, the thing we drive on, the thing that we, we create for gears and everything, that circular form is a simple idea. It wasn't an easy one because the will doesn't really exist in nature anywhere. So the first person to build a will built something complicated. Now, we look at it with a frame of reference that we, we know what a wheel is. We grew up with wheels. So to us, it's an easy idea. Of course, it's natural. But imagine that guy looking at a rock going, I need to make something to move 
what shape will it be? I think that's a great analogy. I think a lot of times we do come up in things that we take it for granted in a way, right? Yeah. Advertising is one of those things that it's around us all the time. Maybe it's too much around us. And and then we, when the messages are subtle, we just assume that that took no time at all. Yeah, because the message has to touch a human being, make them feel an emotion. And if you realize how hard it is to tell, make somebody have a happy cry, you know, or feel elated about something or fall in love with an idea or a product or a service, that's complicated. We can't get human beings to fall in love with each other. I recently did a, a talk in Moscow and it was focused on a, on a lot of the same words. You know, I'm, I'm someone that's very much into definitions and words and, and drilling them down to meaning. Because I think when we, when we use terms very flippantly, that's when they lose their, their power. And love, these ideas of, of magic, connection. I use magic as a, as a term to describe something that is unexplained, but yet very powerful. It's the possibility between two states of being in the sense that when that person created the wheel, to use your analogy, one could cite that as a moment of magic. There was a technology that didn't exist at one point, and now it did, right? Like the wheel is a technological leap forward. Like, why do you think we're uncomfortable using this, this type of language in business settings? We build ourselves up to be logical, analytical, intellectual, educated, all of this stuff. We put four, five, six, 12 years into college. And now I'm going to speak to you like a human, like somebody off the street. I've got to have terms. I've got to impress you. It's ego. And also, when I said advertising was simple, it's, it's just about what you just asked. When we were simple, when we said we create creative solutions for clients, Clients went, yeah, but how do we measure it? How do I know who's where my money's going? How do I? and those questions? Then we we had to complicate things. We got to give you those systems to justify this. Instead of going, do you know? You know, you ran that Super Bowl spot and your website crashed. Was that a good thing for you? My God, we had so many clients. We put these things in place because, or we have trouble with it because we never think. Anything easy, I mean simple, is valuable. We equate simple to easy. Easy is not simple and simple is not easy. And there's also a, another distinction I like to make, and I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on it as well, that there is a difference between something being complicated and something being complex. And I think that sometimes gets, gets lost where those two terms get conflated, right? Where I think the work of of advertising, marketing, I think most of how we exist as people in whatever we endeavor to do is somewhat complex. Yes. But it doesn't mean it's complicated because complexity has to do with systems being connected to one another, right? Like yeah. as human beings, we are complex complex organisms. If you you can't really simplify us. And I think a lot of times what the measurement and the data tries to do is take our complex range of wants, needs, emotions, 
and simplify them. You know, so I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about about that dichotomy. Here's a prime example. What's your favorite color? I'm kind of boring, dude. I do like a basic blue and gray. <laughs> okay. I'm monotone like a mug. Okay, so blue and gray is your favorite color. Yeah. Why? Yeah, no clue. Then what algorithm piece of data research can tell me your favorite color without knowing you and getting the answer from you? None. Zero. See, that's complex. Human beings are factoring in so many different things and decide you like blue and gray. Something in your past made that your favorite. That's complex. Complicated is we're going to do all this testing to figure out what your favorite color is when we could have simply asked you what's your favorite color. Yeah, there's a predictive nature that I think a lot of marketers believe the data will get them to this crystal ball. Type. Like when I was in business school, they literally had programs called crystal ball, right? <laughs> to measure, to do all kind of operations type exercises. And it just doesn't work that way. I had a similar, a, a guy in, asked me a question at a talk about measurement. And I said, how do you know when you're in love? You know, I use a, a different, you just know it, right? It's something you feel intrinsically and no one can break that down, explain it, or make it make any less sense. Or tell you why you're in love. Yes. Or better yet, here's the good one. How much do you love whatever you love? See, we don't know that there's no depth to it because love has no no boundaries. We can't put it in a, a container and weigh it out. We can't shoot a laser through it to see how dense it is. Love is love. That's why human beings are complex, not complicated. And that's where we, when you use those two words, I went, oh, I hadn't really thought about them, but I know the difference. Exactly. When I say fall in love with a product, look at Apple. And I think people, there are two apples in the world. There's the pre-iPhone Apple, which all create, the majority of the creators in advertising worked with. We carried Apple for a long time. Think about how we feel about our Apple products. That is a love. You know, it's not like, okay, it's a tool. Because there are now PCs that do what Macs are do. Yeah, and cheaper. Yes, but you'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to pry that Mac out of my hand. Exactly. Like Charlton Heston. <laughs> yes, out of my cold, dead hands. But, but we, we gloss over that. And we don't know how to... There's no way to duplicate that, you know? I mean, there's no formula for duplicating that. You got to put in the work. Here I am in Columbia, South Carolina, and there's this small hometown bakery. I don't know why I'm loyal to them, but I'm loyal to them. Yeah. You know, even when they run out of stuff, I don't get upset. I just understand and accept it because there's such a good place to visit that carries over. And they've earned that, right? Like, I think... I yes. haven't been to this space that you're talking about, right? I'm I'm in Brooklyn, you're in South Carolina. Yeah. But when I hear you start to tell that story, the emotion of it comes through, right? Yes. And you and we feel it. Like these places that we have in our in our lives, in our community, and I think that speaks to maybe a larger issues about what our communities even begin to look like, 
right? The big box stores proliferate everything. The brands proliferate everything. There's this sameness in experience. It translates into advertising. And the small bakery that you describe is somewhat a oasis from that, perhaps, for you, right? In a, in a manner of speaking. Yes. But you know what? Here's the problem. We're ashamed of having emotions and feelings. What's the saying in business? Is is nothing personal. It's just business. But it is always personal. You lay somebody off, no matter how good you feel towards that person. The person that's laid off has negative feelings about the organization that just let them go. No matter how much business sense it makes, it's personal to that human being. You pass somebody over for a promotion. This person's more qualified. This person has more experience. Whatever you want to justify it with. We come back and say, it's just business. It's not personal. You tell the person that wasn't promoted that. If we were honest with ourselves, we would understand that there is feelings behind everything. I run into clients who behave out of a sense of fear. This is, not, this is new and different. Nobody else has done it. So if I do this and it doesn't work, I'm going to look bad at my job. What's that emotion? That emotion is fear. But we keep going. There's no when fear, emotions and feelings. We tell people, what's the saying? He wears his feelings on his sleeves, his emotions on his sleeve. We don't, having feelings in the business sense is almost a sin. I'll add on to that. Emotion is weaponized against people of color and women in business. Yeah. Oh, hard. I just spoke with a young man who was told he needed to tone his passion down. I have never heard a young white creative being told that. Never. But this young man is going out and finding projects to work on when he, outside of it, and he's pushing hard to do better work. And they actually wrote him up over his passion. Different people are allowed to show emotion at different times, right? So I used exactly. to work at on a trading desk. Mm -hmm. And when people hear hear that, they, everyone has an image of what a trading desk is like. And they say, oh, what was it like sitting there on the trading desk for all these years? And I was like, a trading desk is an excuse for grown people to act like children. You know, in the sense that there's temper tantrums, there's yelling, there's screaming, there's verbal abuse, everything just short of physical abuse. And I would say to myself, these are the same people who say business is this rational environment. This is These are the most irrational group of people I've, I've ever been around. And when you talk about fear, I, I did a talk called Curing the Culture of Fear years ago. And my takeaway from that, and it sounds like you're saying similar stuff, is that a lot of organizations, they try not to lose rather than to win. And it's all based on fear. Yes, it's all grounded because half of what agencies get wrong is based on not on what the client said. But if we do this, we already play out in our heads how the client's not going to like something or how they're going to respond negatively. And it's so funny to watch it because you're going, why don't we just ask them? Oh, no, we can't. Why can't we ask them? Because they've never done it like this before. And, well, 
the, the fear of uncertainty. How's the client going to respond to this? It's not, it's not like anything anyone's done. What, what are we going to do? All of that is just, I mean, fear is so powerful in our society. Yep. And it's a herd mentality, right? Like, <laughs> I think about VCs, right? You think about Silicon Valley, another so-called, you know, if, let's take it from a branding perspective, right? They've branded themselves as these risk takers, these rebels, these folks that are they can see the things the rest of us can't see. And then when you look at the decisions that they make and who they choose to invest in and who they choose to give money to, it's all the same types of people, all the same types of businesses. I'm like, the risk profile is actually not differentiated at all. No, and it's, it's low. It's a low risk thing. It's just sort of comical that people that, that think they live on the edge really are walking on a way, they're so, so far away from the edge. I'm like, really, that's a risk? No, that's not a risk. I gave you a risk. And then when you give them a risk, they go, oh, no, we don't want that. Exactly. So why not? Because it's, oh, I saw this. I want new and inv- innovative ideas that have been proven to work. Yeah, just just that statement alone, you've eliminated exactly how you set the stage, right? If it's been done before, it ain't new. No, and it's not invent- innovative. Not anymore. Innovative is the first couple people to do it. Proving to work means everybody's, we've worked out all the bugs and we know this will work. It's no longer an innovation. It's, the, it's a standard. But that is where we live as a society. We want proof for everything. And I think that kills us sometimes because it takes the, your word, it takes the magic out of things. If I can guarantee you results on how many people are going to view a post or, or a YouTube video or a Vimeo video, then where's the magic in that? I, that's why I, I'm, I'm one of the few people, I guess, in advertising who will not watch Super Bowl spots except during the Super Bowl. Because I want the magic of seeing it in the environment it was created in. Hmm. When, we, when, when we dissect it for a week or two beforehand and then a week afterwards, but we never saw it living where it's supposed to live. That's what made Tide so brilliant is how it, it, it throughout the Super Bowl, I'm glad they didn't, didn't preview it. But think about how the Tide series of spots broke the Super Bowl and they kept hitting you. And you kept going, is this a real commercial or is this a Tide commercial? Is it a real one? And they had you. But if you saw that ahead of time, there was no surprise. There was no, you know, there's nothing, there's no magic to it. Yeah. Magic is, no, magic is what we're, we're sorely missing. And what worries me or concerns me, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it, is that we're so under or at least it feels that way. So maybe I'm manifesting some of my own emotion into this question, right? Is that I feel like even those who of us who are creatives feel so much pressure on the monetization side of our creativity that we feel pressure to give what will pay us rather than what we feel. Have you have you had experience with that this Everyone's monetizing their creativity. Hobbies become a form of monetization. It's like you can't just do something for the sake of doing it, right? If you play a guitar, you got to figure out a way to 
put clips up on YouTube and monetize your your hobby. Like, what do you think about about that and how it how it frames creativity for all of us? I think we have to because we're no longer hiring those people. People have to monetize it because if they don't, we will take free forever and they will go broke pursuing their hobby. I mean, it's honestly, it's one of the reasons I quit blogging. The trade pubs do not pay for bloggers, but they charge a subscription and advertising. So as a, as a create, as a writer, should I give although I enjoy blogging, should I give that away free? No, definitely not. But I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that. But you still write out of your personal. Oh yeah. Obviously, your work requires you to write, but you haven't said, "Oh, because I'm not blogging for this X trade publication, I'm not going to keep my own notes, keep my own journal, express myself through the written word." And so that's that's the connect I'm I'm trying to get at. That your passion is still your passion regardless of you allowing yourself to be really taken advantage of, right? And, and all of us are in this situation. And I think, to your point, though, that's why so many people are now pushing to monetize it. They almost have a need to because even YouTube makes money off of those videos you post, you know? Everybody's making money off of you now. And I think digital hurt us there. I love digital. Don't get, this, don't get me wrong. but it turned everything into a commodity. Everything's something to sell. We all understand that if we're on social media, they're collecting our data. They're collecting our pictures and our images and everything else. There comes a time in a human being's mind where they go, where we go, you know, should I get paid for that? And I think that's the success of TikTok and Instagram. Those that let people make money start off letting you do that. Well, we've seen this transition now where we're the product, right? It's, it's like Doug Rushkoff says, you know, one of my patron saints out there, if it's free and it's a service, you're the product, right? You're you're what's driving that that huge economy now of of data. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the the challenges we have here because data driven drives digital. And digital is where everyone's spending their money, even though we're seeing pushback against digital. Recently, Adidas came out and, and, and talked about that their digital spend probably wasn't the best use of their money, right? Like, Okay. Some of their digital. Yeah, they some of their talking, digital. They were talking about balance. And I hate to go simple. Advertising is, a, is, a, is an arsenal. And this is, I'm so glad, I, I want to say this, and this is one of the important things for me. Advertising is an arsenal. TV is a, is, is a shotgun. You want to hit the most people? You know, a shotgun with buckshot will hit, with one shot will hit five, six people. That's a very South Carolina analogy, my friend. <laughs> I, well, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> I, actually, my dad was in the military, so I think of them as weapons. Okay. Digital is almost... Almost, a, it's, it's a rifle, a single shot rifle sometimes. You can square in on one target and you, with one bullet, you can reach that target. Now, the sniper rifle, oddly enough, tends to be, for me, direct mail. I can drill down so deep in direct mail that even more than social media, because direct mail, 
captures all of the all the psychographics and infographics. But think about it. If you're 1,800 yards away, you're not using the shotgun. Yeah, that's not going to be effective at all. But if you're up close and there's more than one of them, you're not using the sniper rifle because you have to load a bullet at a time there. Sniper rifles don't fire automatic. Yeah, that shotgun is zombie ready. Yeah. So advertising, what happened is people were selling, use a sniper rifle to kill that. No, I'm sorry. Use a, a bow and arrow to kill that elephant. No, that elephant ain't going down from a bow and arrow now. All you can do is piss him off and you're going to find out real quick. That's a bad thing. So what we should have been selling to the clients is have a balanced arsenal. What you need for each situation, great agencies, track people where they are, where they are. They speak to people wherever you are. I love digital, but if you if you live in a, in a city or a state where the commute is a long drive, South Carolina, I, I commute 14 miles a mm-hmm. day, one way. Why wouldn't you have outdoor? Because in my drive, I'm not seeing nothing. I'm not seeing any digital. Yeah. And the same it, on the flip on New York, right? I'm spending my time underground with headphones on, right? Subway, yeah. subway movement, you know? So audio might be a better tool as, as an, an example to kind of keep that logical yeah. extension going. I would do, I do digital because you guys can, you can, sitting on the train, you can, you can scroll through your social media on platforms. You can be online searching stuff. If I do that, I get a, a $200, $300 ticket driving down the highway doing that. If I live, you know, if I don't run into somebody. And here's the funny part. And we, we talk, it's, it comes back to race, but it always is. If you want to reach Black and Hispanic folks during drive time, they're listening to Black and Hispanic radio. The radio's still alive in those communities. Yes, very much so. There's a religious station growing around the country now that's subscription only. And it's on public radio, but they're supported by the subscriptions from their listeners. You need, you know, if you want to reach white religious folks, you need to be on, you need to be on that radio station or close to it or around it. But radio, but if you heard people say that, if you if you're talking to a group of advertising professionals, nobody talks about radio. Nobody talks about print. But every time I pick up an ad age and I, I sit down at a business meeting and I'm reading the ad age, I have non-advertising people coming up to me going, Can I have that after you get done with it? Yeah. And and I'll add on to that. There's also those secondary and tertiary sort of um what I call industry specific business magazines cranes is a good example of that a lot of the the real estate commercial observer type of periodicals mm-hmm. they get a, a lot of burn and they have a lot of information in those that are what i would consider because again it's human based yes it's adjacency to industry mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing i've always been a we work skeptic for example like for a very long time i thought we work was trash but I think if you were reading a Cranes, a Commercial Observer, and looking at the real estate side of that argument, a lot of what fell out in that WeWork situation could have been discerned. To your point about looking in non-obvious places, 
Oh wow! I see. I I I get stuck in the trade our trade pubs, and I and I'm sorry. If I'm going to pick up a magazine, I'm picking up a car and driving. Yeah. I still love car. So I'm not as much. I, I I sound. It's not like I'm not a reader. It's like I don't read the business ones so much. But look at WeWork. WeWork with one. Here's the problem. Here's my problem with WeWork. There are 500 and something locations. Not one in South Carolina. Not one. Yeah. It's also about targeting. It's it's ego sometimes. Yeah. South Carolina doesn't sell their story, right? No. It's it's and it's better to put them up here like Dwayne Reed and Starbucks, one on every yeah. corner. We are having an explosion of Starbucks. <laughs> you know, especially for some small a small city like this. But what people don't understand is there's a ton of money flowing through these small cities, these small markets. People here drive 75, 80 miles conservatively to buy a Tesla. They drive that far Mm -hmm. because the nearest Tesla dealer is in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they going over cross state. Yes. And right now in, in this city, you'll see almost a thousand Teslas in a city of about 500,000. Mm-hmm. That's a good start for a place with only one charging station, Tesla charging station. You know, it's, we don't see money. We, we don't see people. We see demogra- we see psychographics and de- de- demographics and trades and, and data. This is where data lies to us. Exactly. Because you don't, you don't see a human being. And that concludes part one of the deep dive conversation with Derek Walker. We discussed Derek's career in advertising and wrestling with the idea of advertising being a simple science. In part two, we'll expand on that theme and talk about the urgent need for real diversity in the advertising industry. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Please download, subscribe, listen, and share. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you and see you on the other side.